We are in Acts chapter 28. We're going to cover verses 17 through 31 this morning. And if you read ahead, you likely had some questions. The ending of Acts is a little bit peculiar. So much so that some people think that it's just a really bad ending. It leaves us with a myriad of unanswered questions. Whatever happened to Paul? Did he ever get before Caesar? Was he exonerated? Did he make it to Spain? What what happened to Paul? Luke is silent on the matter. We do know from uh, tradition and extra-biblical resources that in all likelihood, Paul was able to be free, that he did get to Spain, and that eventually he was subsequently arrested once more before being beheaded at the order of of Nero. Nevertheless, Luke doesn't tell us any of this. Instead, he he leaves Paul preaching about Jesus in Rome. He, He is putting kind of Paul in the background, and he's bringing what's most important to Luke to the foreground, which is the king and his kingdom. Our main idea this morning is that Jesus is the risen and ruling king. And I I want to exhort you to faithfully witness to Jesus' kingship. It's going to be a little different this morning. We're going to start at the end, overview Acts, and then we're going to talk about the last uh, 17 through 28 together, okay? And so you can see there, there are two kind of big points. Uh, The first is that the word of God is sufficient to do the work of God. And the second is that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises. Let's pray and we'll begin. Father, we thank you for this great privilege of gathering together in your name to sing, to pray, and to hear your word proclaimed. Pray that you would give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and hearts that would believe. Pray that you would pour out your grace on us once more this morning. That we would be brought to joy at the thought of the salvation Christ has purchased for us. Lord, we thank you for Jesus and for your word. And we pray in the name of Christ. Amen. So look with me here at these last couple verses that I've already alluded to in verse 30 and 31 of chapter 28. We read, Paul stayed two whole years in his own rented house, and he welcomed all who visited him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Luke is doing something really fun here. He, he is, he's allowing Paul to fade into the background, and he's bringing Jesus back to the foreground. He's turning the spotlight, and he's putting it on the king and his kingdom. See that note about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is only mentioned six times in the book of Acts, but it's probably the primary theme of the book. You see, Luke quite intentionally makes sure that we see that Paul is teaching about the kingdom of God here and that the word of God is going unabated, that it is not hindered. 
And he does that because that's right where he started. If you look back in Acts chapter 1 in the first three verses, this is what you'll read. I wrote the first narrative, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up, after he had given instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. After he had suffered, he also presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And so what Luke has done here on the front end and the back end of his book has given us what uh, the fancy way to refer to it is an inclusio. Uh, We might just say it's like bookends, thematic bookends, where he started with the kingdom of God and now he's finished with the kingdom of God. And the content in between those two things is telling us all about the kingdom of God and about its king. Which leads us to ask a pretty, I think, important question. What exactly is the kingdom of God? Really brief definition that I like is it's God's people in God's place under God's rule. See, the message Jesus preached is that the kingdom of God has begun for all who repent and believe his message. And so uh, the kingdom of God is not necessarily right now a space that we have right out in front of us, but the rule and the reign of Christ in which the blessings of God come to his people. It's, It's the life of heaven breaking into earth. And it will one day be consummated in the new heavens and the new earth. And so the king, Jesus, reigns over his people And eventually, when his kingdom comes in its fullness, it'll be the the whole earth. It's God's reign and rule. Now, now obviously, there are two senses we can think of of God being the ruler or the king, right? In one sense, God rules over everybody and everything all the time. But there's another sense in which he rules over his people, those who have repented of their sins and who have trusted in him. We hear uh, Jesus speak about this in parables, right? There's a parable of the wheat and the tares. Everybody's in the kingdom then, but there's also the wheat. You you don't want to be weeds, you want to be wheat, because the wheat is specially in the kingdom. They're submitted to the kingship of Jesus. Likewise, uh, you hear in the parable of the mustard seed, the kingdom of heaven is like mustard seed. It grows up and it's expanding. And so what Luke is telling us here, because kingdom is a really, really big theme in Scripture, is that the kingdom we have waited on as Jews that was foretold in the Old Testament, it has come in Jesus. It's, it's already here, and it's not yet here. It's been inaugurated. It's not yet been consummated. And Jesus is teaching about this kingdom in the very first chapter of Acts. And Paul is teaching of it at the very end. And it's because even though it's here already and it's not yet here in its fullness, that time in between is a time of expansion. The kingdom expands when the gospel invades the hearts of the lost. The kingdom of God grows as men and women turn from their sins and put their faith in Jesus, and submit themselves to the rule of Christ. 
And so as we see Joel, Jesus building his church in Acts, we see the kingdom growing. And the kingdom grows by his word. His word proclaimed. That's why when persecution breaks out, Peter and the others early on in chapter 4, they don't pray for deliverance, but they pray this way. For in fact, in this city, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel assembled together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed to do whatever your hand and your will had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, consider their threats and grant your servants may speak your word with all boldness. While you stretch out your hand for healing and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. When they had prayed, the place where they were assembled was shaken and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God boldly. They don't pray for deliverance from their circumstances. They pray for the boldness and the clarity to continue preaching the word of God, to continue preaching Christ crucified for sins and raised for justification. They understand that they are living at a time where Jesus is still at work. I do love it in chapter 1 and verse 1. He says, I wrote the first volume about what Jesus began to do and teach. And you see, see, this volume is about what Jesus is going to continue to do. And he's going to continue to be at work by the power of his Holy Spirit and by putting his mouth, or he put his mouth, putting his word into the mouths of his servants. God works in acts through his word in the mouth of his spirit-empowered witnesses. This is why Jesus gives them this kind of mini commission in verse 8 of chapter 1. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. We've summarized it a bunch of times this way, right? Jesus goes up, he ascends into heaven from where he rules and reigns. The Holy Spirit comes down, fills up the church, who then goes out proclaiming Christ. And in response to the word of God, God brings people into his church. That's what's happening in Acts. Jesus goes up, the Spirit comes down, the church goes out, and God brings people in. And the way that he grows his church, the way that the kingdom expands, is by his word and his work as his witnesses proclaim it. See, the word of God is sufficient to do the work of God. And we read over and over again these summaries about how the word of God spreads, how the kingdom is expanding. In Acts chapter 6, verse 7, we read, So the word of God spread, and the disciples in Jerusalem increased greatly in number, and a large group of priests became obedient to the faith. And then in chapter 7, uh, Stephen is proclaiming that Jesus is the fulfillment of all the Jewish hope, that he's raised from the dead, and he's killed for it. And we read in chapter 8, Saul agreed with putting him to death. On that day, a severe persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles, so a bunch of Christians with the exception of the apostles, were scattered throughout the land, and look where they're scattered, they're scattered throughout the land of Judea and Samaria. Right? That sounds familiar. That's Acts 1.8. Devout men buried Stephen and mourned deeply over him. Saul, however, was ravaging the church. 
He would enter house after house, drag off men and women and put them in prison. So those who were scattered went on their way preaching the word. And then that whole section is summed up in verse 31 of chapter 9. So the church throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and was strengthened, living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It increased in numbers. And we see this theme that in the face of adversity, the word of God is prevailing. There's persecution, but God's word is continuing on just as Jesus said it would. The kingdom continues to grow. We see this kind of persecution again in chapter 12 when James is killed by Herod. But at the end of the chapter, we read, that, we read this, verse 23 of chapter 12. At once an angel of the Lord struck Herod because he did not give the glory to God. And he was eaten by worms and died. And then verse 24, But the word of God flourished and multiplied. The word of God is spreading in the book of Acts. God is building his church. Jesus said he would build his church and the gates of hell would not prevail against him and, or it. And that is what's happening in Acts. He's building. The witness of the church has filled up Jerusalem. It's gone into Judea and Samaria and it's headed towards the last chapters, 13 through, through the end here, towards the ends of the earth. And it's not just spreading geographically in Acts. We see that the gospel spreads socially. That's why Paul is before kings and governors. It's, it's being heralded to all strata of society. It's not just spreading socially and geographically. It's also spreading ethnically. Remember, Peter takes the gospel to Cornelius in chapter 10. And the Holy Spirit falls on them and they are baptized. And then he goes back to the church at Jerusalem and he's explaining what happens. He says, God has granted salvation to the Gentiles. And in response, they say, verse 18 of chapter 11, when they heard this, they became silent and they glorified God saying, so then God has given repentance resulting in life even to the Gentiles. The gospel is going to all kinds of people in all kinds of places because the word of God is the power unto salvation for all who will believe in Jesus. The word of God is sufficient to do the work of God. Jesus is able to save from the lowest of the low. He can save the handmaiden and the slave and he can save the king. He can save anyone who will turn from their sins and believe in him. He, even, he will even reconcile to himself those devoted to the occult and to demonism. You remember that? Just It's one of my favorite parts of Acts in chapter 19. You have those fake exorcists rolling around. Paul is healing a bunch of people. And you have the fake exorcist over here called the Seven Sons of Sceva, right? And they're kind of this traveling band. And they're going to try to perform an exorcism on a guy. And when they do it, they say, in the name of this, this Jesus, hocus pocus, we command you to come out. And the demon replies, I've heard of Jesus. I've heard of Paul. But who are you? And then the demon proceeds to beat up the seven sons of Sceva. 
and strip them of their clothes so that we are left with this image of them fleeing, naked, and humiliated. And then all the people look around and they take their their magic books and their spell books and their superstitions and they, they have a big bonfire. And we read in verse 20 of Acts chapter 19, in this way, the word of the Lord flourished and prevailed. The word of God is sufficient to do the work of God. God is growing his church. He's expanding his kingdom through his spirit-empowered witnesses. That's you and me, the church. Through his church by putting his word in their mouth. The church, the witnesses, Peter, Paul, are responsible for, for proclaiming the word of God. And it's the word of God that does the work of God. It's the word of God that brings dead people to life. And we see the gospel continue to go, not only from Judea and Samaria, Jerusalem, it, it goes to the ends of, of the earth. It's making its way, which from Jerusalem, Rome is kind of the edge of the earth. It's making its way there. And it's in Rome that Paul continues to preach the word. Look with me at verse 17 of chapter 28. I'm going to actually start at 16. When we entered Rome, Paul was allowed to live by himself with a soldier who guarded him. After three days, he called together the leaders of the Jews. When they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, Although I have done nothing against our people or the customs of our ancestors, I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. After they examined me, they wanted to release me, since there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. Because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, even though I had no charge to bring against my people. For this reason, I have asked to see you and speak to you. In fact, it's for the hope of Israel that I'm wearing this chain. Then they said to him, We haven't received any letters about you from Judea. None of the brothers has come and reported or spoken anything evil about you. But we want to hear what your views are, since we know that people everywhere are speaking against this sect. And so here is Paul. He's finally arrived in Rome. And he calls together after a few days, after he gets settled, you know, puts his rug out. He calls the Jewish leaders together. And he explains to them, really simply, he boils it down to like two things. Like the reason I'm here, reason number one I'm here, is I have been falsely and unjustly accused of violating the temple, of violating the customs of our people. I'm innocent. That's point number one. I'm innocent. I've been falsely accused. Point Number two, I am not going to bring a countercharge against you, my people. I don't, I, I've been unjustly accused, but I'm, I'm not bringing countercharges. In fact, I'm actually here not because I oppose Israel or Israel's God, but because of the hope of the resurrection. It's because I believe the scriptures that I've ended up here. And they kind of, they have their interest peaked a little bit. 
uh, they say, we actually haven't received any correspondence about you. This would have been unusual. Uh, so uh, when he was sent to Rome, there would have been correspondence sent ahead of or behind him so that they would know what the charges are. But they haven't received anything. Nobody knows much about him. They're saying, nobody's even said anything evil about you. They say, but we, we do want to hear about this Jesus stuff. We don't know much about it, but we know that everyone everywhere is speaking against this sect, speaking against Christianity. And so Paul says, that's great. Come, I will tell you. You want to hear about it? I'll, I'll tell you. Verse 23. After arranging a day with him, many came at his lodging. From dawn to dusk, he expounded and testified about the kingdom of God. He tried to persuade them about Jesus from both the law of Moses and the prophets. Some were persuaded by what he said, but others did not believe. And so we can see what Paul is doing. He is saying, the kingdom of God has come in Christ. It's been inaugurated, and it will one day be consummated. But, but right now, it's not, it's not a geopolitical kingdom like we thought. He didn't come to just, just conquer Rome and conquer our enemies. No, he, he came to conquer death and sin. He came to save us from the greatest enemy. He's saying, friends, this king is the hope of Israel. He's the hope you were waiting for. He's he's the the true and better Moses. He's the the true and better David. He's the one to whom all the law and all the prophets had been pointing. His kingdom has come, and you can enter in if you will turn from your sins and trust him. He's atoned for your sins by hanging and dying on a cross. See, Jesus came and his kingdom, his kingship was in, in some ways begun. In some ways he was enthroned when he was mocked and had the garments of a king put on his shoulders before being stripped and then having the crown of a king put on his head and having the message above him as he hung on the cross, here is the king of the Jews. He was being lifted up so that he might die for his people. Jesus' kingdom is upside down. It's a kingdom where the king gives his life in service to his people. And indeed, he didn't stay dead. He was raised and he's at the right hand of God, ruling and reigning. And Paul is telling them, the king that you have been waiting on, the kingdom that you have been waiting to come is here. Enter in. Enter into it. Your own Bible tells you about this. And he tries to persuade them, says, from dawn to dusk. This is an all-day affair of trying to persuade them. And he has similar results that he has elsewhere throughout the book when we've followed him on his missionary journeys. Some people believe And others disbelieve. And Paul then shifts to giving a warning 
to those who persist in unbelief. Look at verse 25. Disagreeing among themselves, they began to leave after Paul made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your ancestors, notice the shift here, earlier he's calling them brothers and we're, we're the same family, and now he's saying to your ancestors through the prophet Isaiah when he said, go to these people and say, you will always be listening but never understanding and you will always be looking but never perceiving for the hearts of these people have grown callous. Their ears are hard of hearing. And they have shut their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears, understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. What is going, why is Paul quoting Isaiah here? And we actually read this passage earlier together. Remember, Isaiah finds himself in this vision. He's in the throne room of God. There are angels flying around and they are saying to God, holy, holy, holy. And smoke is filling up the temple. Its foundations are shaking. And Isaiah sees himself there in the presence of God and says, woe is me. I'm ruined. I'm done. I'm cooked. I can't be in the presence of your holiness. I deserve to die. Then that coal is taken from the altar where a sacrifice has been made. It's pressed to his lips. He's told your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. And then he's given the task of preaching God's word to Israel. And he's told they're not going to listen. The vast majority of them are not going to listen and my judgment is going to come. But I will preserve for myself a remnant. And there is a holy seed, a stump, which is pointing us to Christ. So why is Paul bringing up this imagery? He's saying, just like Isaiah preached to your ancestors and your ancestors refused to believe and as a result had their eyes blinded and their ears deafened, so too, if you refuse to listen to me, will your judgment be. If you hear my words and reject them, your hearts will grow hard. You will not see. You will not hear the word of God. You will not turn and enjoy healing. Paul is warning them. He's saying the word of God is always doing something. Either beginning to draw you towards God, or it'll, it'll calcify your heart to the things of God. The more you reject the gospel, the more likely it is that God will give you over to that. He's saying if you persist in rebellion, God will ultimately give you what you want. Eternal separation from his grace and his mercy and his love. He will ultimately give you hell. That, that's what Paul is saying. He's warning these people about the cost of rejecting Jesus. 
Friends, it is loving to warn. Love warns others. It's a loving thing for you as a Christian to share the gospel with those who do not know Christ. It is a loving thing for you to warn them. Friend, if you do not believe in Jesus, hell is real. God is just. He's patient. His kindness, his patience is meant to lead you to repentance. But his patience, it does not last forever. And his holy good and right justice will be satisfied. Friend, please put your faith in Jesus. Only the blood of Christ can satisfy the wrath of God. I don't care how good a person you are. It's not enough. You are a sinner. You are as Isaiah before the Lord. Ruin a man or a woman of unclean lips. Love, it warns. This is why we practice church discipline. Because when a brother or sister is caught in sin and chooses their sin over Jesus, what we are saying to them is to refuse to repent is to reject Jesus Christ. You cannot have your sin and have Jesus. If you persist to cling to your sin rather than the cross of Christ, you will find yourself under the judgment of God. Brother, sister, repent. Love warns. When Chelsea and I first moved here, we used to like to take our new visitors to Crabtree Falls down the way. Some of you have been there. It's what, like two-mile hike-ish up? And so, uh, I don't know, it was just a thing we did. We'd always take new visitors up there. And without fail, every time, we'd get about halfway up, and there are some really cool-looking spots where you think to yourself, if I could get a little bit far out there, maybe on the rocks, I could get a, a really great like Instagram picture, be great on my Facebook profile. I can get, get some great pictures, or I can see farther. It would be really fun to climb out onto those rocks. And without fail... I don't know about without fail, but I typically, I would point to the sign and say, the sign says, don't go beyond this point. Oftentimes, I'd be saying it to my wife because she's one of those people. I'd say, don't go beyond this point. And you have to decide, is the sign there to ruin your day and to ruin your good time, or is the sign there to save your life? Because if you're from the area, you know. People have died while walking right past the signs that warned them of the dangers ahead. Friends, love warns. And Paul loves those to whom he is preaching. And so he warns them of the wrath to come. He warns them of their need to flee from their sin and to shelter in Jesus Christ our Lord. Tells them to put their faith in him. He warns them, and then he also, this is really neat what Paul does. He tries to, to woo them towards Christ. Woo is kind of an old word. They used to like woo your spouse, right? He tries to woo them, and in verse 20 he says, let it be known to you this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They'll listen. You see, see what he's doing there? 
These promises that you have been waiting on, that your fathers, 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 fathers have been waiting on to come to fruition, well, they've come to fruition. And I'm going to take this message, and I'm going to take these promises, and the Gentiles are going to believe them. They're going to have your promises. It'd be like if I, I had my kids, and I said, hey, if you come into the kitchen, you each can have a cookie. And then one of my kids delayed. And I said to, you know, Elliot, if you don't hurry up and come into the kitchen, I'm going to give your cookie to Owen. All of a sudden, that jealousy is roused up. They can come running. That's what, what Paul is doing. That's a really crude analogy, but, but, but that's what he's doing. He's saying the promises that should be yours are going to the Gentiles. They're going to all kinds of people, to people from every tongue, tribe, and nation, and they're your promises. Come, take hold of them. Take hold of Christ. His kingdom is here. It's already, and, and it's not yet. Come and submit to the king. He's created a new people. His church and they are not monoethnic, but multi-ethnic. Come and be a part. And then Luke gives us that ending where Paul stays for two whole years in his own rented house, welcoming all who visits, proclaiming the kingdom of God, teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. And what we see is that even though Paul is chained, and he says this in somewhere, I think in Timothy, Philippians, even though he's chained, the gospel is unchained. It might appear as if he is in bondage, but the word of God is flourishing. It's prevailing. Think about the guards that would have had to have been chained to Paul as they cycled on and off shift, always hearing the gospel. Think about those who came to Paul, always hearing the gospel. Think about the letters that Paul wrote from his prison that are in your Bible. The gospel is not chained. The word of God will accomplish the will of God. The word of God is sufficient for the, word, the work of God. So we're left with this picture of Paul kind of in the background and the kingdom in the foreground. And I think part of this is to, to show us that Luke wants us to understand his whole gospel in light of Jesus building his kingdom and in light of Jesus building his church, but also to call us into the story to say the work is not done. See, from one vantage point, if you're in Jerusalem, Rome is the ends of the earth. But from another vantage point, Rome was the center of the world perfect conduit through which ministry could continue to flow out. Indeed, the gospel has gone from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, to the very ends of the earth. But it's not yet gone to every corner of the globe. And you see, we are invited in. We are invited in here. We, we are part of uh, what some call like Acts 29 or Acts 3. We're in the other chapters of Acts that aren't written down where Jesus continues to work through his spirit-empowered witnesses who herald his word. 
where Jesus continues to build his church, where Jesus continues to expand his kingdom. And you go, well, how does he do it? By his word. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always to the very end of the age. Church, this is not just a book about Peter and Paul. This is a book about all the nameless Christians, all the unknown churches that help contribute to the work of God. Yes, he focuses in on Peter and Paul, but the gospel got to Rome fine way before Paul. He wrote the letter to the Romans three years before he got there. How do you think the gospel got to Rome? Well, through the mouth of faithful witnesses. How do you think Paul is able to stay for two years at his own rented house when he's a prisoner? Who do you think pays for the bill? The church. The church in Rome, in the same way that he was supported earlier. God has continued to provide for his needs. I think this shows us something important. Let me back up. Our mission as a church is to know Jesus and to make Jesus known. Know Jesus, make Jesus known. To worship Jesus and to witness to Jesus by making disciples of all nations and proclaiming the gospel. All of us are called to be a part of missions. Not all of us are called to go, but all of us are responsible. Some of us might, might go, and some of us will stay here. All of us are to be involved. And when we see the, the church here is supporting Paul financially, supporting his ministry. While Paul goes, he's, he's in prison. Likewise, we, we will be supporting someone's ministry, or we should be going ourselves. This is what obedience to the Great Commission looks like. We want to make sure everyone in the whole world knows our glorious God and King. We love uh, the missions is, is not that complicated. You either go down into the well or you hold the rope. Either way, there should be scars on your hands. And so the question for us is, do we have scars of faithfulness? Are we really being about the expansion of the kingdom of God in the world? Are we about Jesus building his church as we go forth and proclaim faithfully his word? And then secondly, those of us who stay behind, which is most of us here, you live here, we're part of this church. It doesn't absolve you from sharing the gospel. Right, you know, the only difference between a foreign missionary and you and I, ordinary Christians, is location, not purpose. We're still called to witness to the Lord Jesus Christ wherever he places us. We're called to, to witness here. We're to be a part of what God has called us to do. We want to worship him together. Our church wants to be a corporate witness that Jesus is alive. That's why we gather on Sunday mornings. You ever think about how weird it is 
that on Sunday morning we gather together. How weird it is that we, we sing songs and pray and participate in the Lord's Supper. That's unusual. We do it because the gospel is true. Because our sins have been paid for and because Jesus is alive. Friends, Jesus is the risen and ruling king. The gospel is still spreading throughout the world. And it's our responsibility to faithfully witness to Jesus' kingship. Let's pray that we would be faithful as a church and as individual Christians in fulfilling this task. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that though our sins are many, your mercy is always more, that you always stand ready to forgive. And we merely need to repent and come home to you. We thank you that we are as prodigals and you are as the prodigal's father, running out to meet us, to dote on us, to give us your blessing to put a robe on our back and ring on our fingers. Lord, we thank you for your lavish love, your incredible grace, your never-ending mercy. We give you praise for this. Thank you for saving us from our sins, for saving us from death. We praise you that death is not the final word in our lives, but resurrection and life. And we pray in the name of he who is the way, the truth, and the life, our King Jesus. Amen.